Welcome to the Once Was Lost podcast. We are the partner podcast of the OWL Once Was Lost phone app, which is a must-have tool for locating missing persons. It's the only real-time app that's an addition for locating missing loved ones or anyone for that matter in a way that can be quicker than law enforcement. You always obviously want to get law enforcement involved if you have a missing person, but this is a tool that can be used for the location of the individuals by using just the basic laws of large numbers, just mathematical laws of large numbers, super simple and very simple to use. So this would get the word out, uh, you know, and help in locating them within that first, so critical first hour or two, which is, uh, you know, the chances of actually finding a missing loved one after that first hour drop significantly especially if it's a possible abduction of a, of a child. So you can download this at owl-oncewaslost.com and also download and subscribe to this podcast at the site or on Apple iTunes and anywhere you're listening to this right now. So let's get into t- today's episode, The Disappearance of Lee Ochi. Lee Ochi was born on August 21st of 1979 in Honolulu, Hawaii, her parents, Vicki Felton and Donald Ochi, were military members who met while stationed in California. In 1977, after a year of dating, they married and were transferred to the military base in Honolulu. Sadly, their marriage came to an end in 1981 with the pair citing irreconcilable differences, and they went their separate ways. Donald relocating to Germany while Vicki left the armed forces and moved with Lee to Tupelo, Mississippi, in order to be closer to her parents. Despite being overseas, Donald maintained a close relationship with his daughter, and during one summer, Lee visited him in Germany, where the pair explored the country, and when he eventually relocated to Fort Myers in Arlington County, Virginia, after a tour in Iraq's Desert Storm, the pair spent more time together, shooting guns and driving Donald's four-wheel drive vehicle. Lee and Vicki lived in a ranch-style home at 105 Honey Locust Drive, which was located at the end of a cul-de-sac. For a while, Vicki was married to a man named Barney Yarborough. However, the pair separated just a few weeks before Lee's disappearance, with Barney moving into an apartment elsewhere in Tupelo. Growing up, Lee was known for being kind, outgoing, and smart, a sweet girl who was known for her love of animals and pizza. She was particularly fond on horses and had a show, a very strong interest in horseback riding. She was also known as a good student, particularly when it came to math, but was said to exhibit what others called disruptive behaviors, such as fidgeting, which resulted in other kids avoiding her. In the summer of 1992, she was 13 years old and about to start eighth grade at Tupelo Middle School. Her boyfriend, 11-year-old Jordan Morse, attended a different school and had started classes early and the pair looked forward to their daily calls every afternoon. At around 8 p.m. on August 26, 1992, Lee had returned home after an event with friends to find the front door to the house unlocked. As this signaled that her mother had not yet returned home, she ventured around the neighborhood, asking neighbors if it would be okay if she waited in their homes for Vicky. She stayed with one until 8.45 p.m. and left upon her mother returning home. According to the neighbor, nothing had seemed amiss, with Lee appearing to be happy and talkative. That night, the remnants of Hurricane Andrew were beginning to cross over the Mississippi. Having been downgraded to a tropical storm, 
the forecast called for severe thunderstorms throughout the night and into the next day. As Lee was scared of such storms, she opted to sleep with Vicky that night. Vicky awoke at 6.45 a.m. the next morning to find Lee still sound asleep in the bed. After taking a shower, she exited the bathroom and saw Lee awake, but still in bed. This was around 7 a.m., as Vicky recalls walking outside to grab the morning newspaper. After this, the pair ate breakfast together and discussed their plans for the evening. The two were to eat dinner at Taco Bell after Lee and her grandmother attended an open house at the middle school. Between 7.35 a.m. and 7.45 a.m., Vicki left for work at the nearby manufacturing company, Leggett & Platt, at which she arrived at 7.50 a.m. This would be the first time that she was leaving her daughter home alone. Upon arriving at work, Vicki borrowed her boss's weather radio in order to keep on top of the worsening weather. At around 8.30 a.m., she called Lee as the weather was forecasted to get worse. The pair had developed a special ring which would inform Lee that her mother was calling. Vicky was to let the phone ring twice before hanging up and calling immediately after. However, Lee never picked up the phone. There are differing reports regarding what happened after. Some sources state that Vicky left work immediately and returned home to check on Lee, while others state that she, the, the mother called to ask if she'd been able to drive to the house and check that everything was okay. Regardless of what happened, it is known that Vicky left Leggett and Platt at 8.45 a.m. and returned home to find the garage door open and the lights still on, meaning it had been activated just a few minutes prior. When she approached the house, she found that the front door was unlocked and a search of the home revealed blood smeared on the walls and no signs of Lee. After checking the backyard and the pool area, Vicky called the Tupelo Police Department to report her daughter is missing. The time was 9 a.m. and 15 minutes after Vicky had returned home. Barney Lay's grandmother and a local reporter who had overheard the call on police radio arrived just minutes after the call was placed, along with patrolmen from the police department. When investigators arrived on scene, they found no signs of forced entry into the home on Honey Locust Drive. However, there were signs that a struggle had occurred. There were fresh pools of typo blood found in Lee's upstairs bathroom, as well as some smeared in the hallway, bathroom, and on her bedroom door. There was a blood trail found leading from the hallway to the living room, as well as blood and hair stuck on the doorframe, indicating Lee had hit her head during the struggle. One of her nightgowns and her bra were also found bloodstained in her laundry hamper, which suggested she'd incurred an injury above the neck, something that was further corroborated by a fist-sized pool of blood on the carpet. According to investigators, this was consistent with someone of Lay's height having received an injury to the head and suggested that she may have lay on the carpet for a short time before being moved. As Lay was known to have either type A or O blood, they worked on the assumption that the pools found belonged to her. In the master bathroom, police found blood in the sink and a pink case covering the countertop, which indicated that someone, likely Lay's attacker and abductor, had made an effort to clean up some of the blood. According to Vicky, all that was missing were Lee's reading glasses, a pair of shoes, some of her clothing, and an old sleeping bag. She told investigators that Lee had still been wearing her nightgown when she'd left for work, but was unable to surmise what she'd been wearing when, when she went missing, given what was removed from her closet. It's believed some of the clothes missing were items she'd received on her birthday a few months prior. Given that the front door was unlocked, it's believed Lee opened the door to her attacker, 
signaling to Vicky and the rest of the family that she likely knew her attacker as she didn't speak to strangers. Police were unable to determine if the missing girl had left the house on foot or if she'd been placed in a vehicle due to a lack of evidence, but they were certain the attacker had an hour to an hour and a half to commit the crime given the timeline Vicky had provided. This meant they couldn't have gotten that far. That same day, 12 patrolmen used bloodhounds to search a one-half-mile area around the house, but due to the worsening weather conditions, the dogs were unable to pick up Lay's scent. They scoured a 10-foot ditch running along the property and then turned their attention to an 80-acre area of brush and trees. Along with this initial search, investigators spoke with locals, walked through vacant lots and overgrown land, searched through the Knox landfill in Chickasaw County, and used bloodhounds to search the family vehicles. On August 28, 1992, local residents joined the search across West Tupelo, with aerial searches being conducted just a day later. There was a focus on areas where Lee could have hidden if she were lost or injured, but it soon became clear to all involved that they were looking for a body and not a live individual. Jordan had revealed that he didn't learn about Lee's disappearance until he rang her residence on the day she went missing. According to him, Vicky had answered the phone but offered little in the way of details. It wasn't until he watched the evening news with his family that he learned more. He shares that the police never spoke to him, which he says is strange considering how often he called and spoke to Lee. One week after the disappearance, a $1,000 reward was offered in the hopes it would prompt anyone with information to come forward. Just two weeks later, it was doubled, which coincided with the home being sealed off. During this time, Vicki hired a private investigator and ran ads in the local newspaper in an aim to garner new leads. On September 1st of 1992, a task force of four investigators was established, and a day later, blood samples taken from the home were sent to the Mississippi State Crime Lab. However, given the limited technology available, only the blood type could be determined. Donald Ochi was able to obtain an emergency one-month leave on September 6, 1992, after which he temporarily moved to Tupelo to help aid in the search for his daughter. According to Donald, Vicky had initially played down Lay's disappearance, having given him the impression she'd simply run away. But upon arriving in Tupelo, he was given the impression that Vicky had potentially been involved. This was further fueled by local residents who told them to look at the mother. From the get-go, Donald shared that he felt Lee was deceased and that someone had entered the home and beat her to death. Police interviewed Lee's friends, family, teachers, and neighbors during the first part of the investigation. Vicky, in particular, was subjected to three polygraph tests and is said to have failed them all leading police to classify her as a person of interest. The tests were given by officials with both local law enforcement and the FBI. Barney and Donald also agreed to take polygraphs, but passed and were ruled out as suspects. Barney was able to provide a substantial alibi during his days of interrogation and is said to have been forthcoming and cooperative throughout the course of the investigation. According to Vicki, a local man named Oscar Mike Kearns is responsible for Lee's disappearance. He was a vacation Bible school and Sunday school teacher who worked at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church, which the family attended. He had shared Lee's love of horses and horseback riding and had asked Lee if she wanted to go riding sometime. In May of 1993, nine months after Lee went missing, 
Kearns abducted a 15-year-old girl whom he'd met through the church under the guise of driving her to school. Instead, he took her to Memphis, Tennessee, where he sexually assaulted her before dropping her off at school. Upon arriving, she contacted the police and later pled guilty to the rape. He was sentenced to 24 years with 16 suspended, but served less than four years and was released in October of 1997. Not long after his release, Kearns kidnapped a married couple and raped the wife. For this, he was sent back to prison and was scheduled for release in 2019. In regards to Lee's disappearance, he has refused to be interviewed or take a polygraph test. This guy's a really strong suspect, guys. I'm sure everybody's saying the same thing right now. He's more than just a person of interest, it would seem. On September 4th, 1992, a college student at Northeast Mississippi Community College was working at McDonald's in Boonesville, Mississippi, a town located 30 miles north of Tupelo. During his shift, he'd seen a girl resembling Lee sitting in a blue truck from the restaurant's drive-thru. According to him, the truck had been driven by a black male. Police were later able to determine that the child in question was not Lee. On September 9, 1992, an 8-inch envelope addressed to a B. Yarborough living on Honey Locust Drive was delivered to Lee in Vicky's home. It had on it six stamps, twice the amount needed, and was postmarked Boonesville, Mississippi. Within it were her reading glasses and nothing more. The FBI and the Mississippi State Crime Lab performed handwriting and forensic tests on the envelope, but neither yielded any results as the stamps had been wet with water. The person who mailed the glasses has never been identified, but police believe they were sent in order to throw off the investigation. Maybe, but again, that's another strong sign since the glasses were missing from the residence. They have the mail back in that manner. I don't know. As the weeks and months pass, rumors began to circulate across Tupelo regarding Lee's disappearance. One stated that Barney had been abusive towards his stepdaughter, while another said that a local doctor had abducted her and buried her in a local barn. The latter resulted in investigators instigating a gag order as they found the rumors were influencing the case too much, and those found breaching it were threatened with two-week suspensions from the force. Donald took great lengths to ensure people didn't forget about his daughter's case. He printed out numerous flyers, which were distributed to interstate bus services, local businesses, and truck drivers, and he ensured her information was sent to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and Child Quest. He also turned to psychics for help, who all claimed that a body of water was somehow related to the case. They all say that. The psychics always say a body of water or water is somehow associated with the case. I don't know if anybody else has ever wondered that. On November 9, 1993, a farmer in Monroe County, Mississippi, discovered a human skull and assorted bones in a ditch along a soybean field. Only four teeth were intact. In order to identify who the skull belonged to, the state medical examiner used the help of a contract dentist who reported to the Jackson Clarion Ledger that dental records concluded the bones belonged to Lee Ochi. This finding was later retracted after Lee's dentist contacted the medical examiner to ensure up-to-date records were being used, which they weren't. This would later lead to the skull being correctly identified as belonging to 27-year-old Pollyanna Sue Keith, who had gone missing from Shannon, Mississippi in March of 1993. Investigators announced in August of 97 that they had a suspect in the case but declined to publicly name them. 
Years later, a new search of Lee's former backyard was conducted as it was revealed that the public works office had been installing rocks as a form of drainage control at the time of her disappearance. This led to the belief that she could have accidentally been buried by those working on the site, which was later disproven by the use of cadaver dogs who failed to pick up on her scent. In an interview with The Open, the case of Lee Ochi podcast, a garden center owner revealed that she'd seen something strange on the morning Lee went missing. According to her, she'd been driving by the Honey Locust Drive when she saw a male and a female walking alongside the road in the torrential rain. As she'd never seen them before, the man pulled up his hood and wrapped his arm around the female's shoulders, pulling her close to him. When the female looked up, she didn't appear injured, but gave off the sense that she was frightened. The woman was going to offer the pair a ride, but decided against it, citing the feeling that something was off. She continued to look at the pair in a rearview mirror until she arrived at the next stop sign, after which time they were gone. Upon learning about Lee's disappearance, the woman called the non-emergency police line and was told someone would contact her. However, no one did. When questioned by the host of the podcast, she shared that the man had been shorter in stature, with a thick build, gray hair, and a scruffy beard. He had been wearing an army-type green jacket. It wasn't until September of 2016 that investigators took down her testimony. Police have shared that they have very little evidence regarding who committed the crime. While several persons of interest have been interviewed, no one has been charged in connection to the case. However, Donald has publicly shared that he believes someone within the family was involved. Despite the lack of evidence, the case is still active, with the most recent development being that Lee's mitochondrial DNA profile has been uploaded to a national database. So there's a few theories on this. First is the, the theory provided by Vicki Felton is that Oscar, or Mike Kearns, was involved in Lee's disappearance. Along with the aforementioned information regarding his criminal past, Kearns lived just a mile from Honey Locust Drive and was someone Lee would have possibly felt comfortable opening the door to. According to Vicki, he began to act strangely towards her after her daughter's disappearance. Not only would he avoid eye contact with her, he also began to stop by the house at random, something he never did before Lee went missing. Tupelo police and the FBI tried on numerous occasions to speak with Kearns, but he quickly obtained a lawyer and refused to talk. He had at one point teased investigators by agreeing to take a polygraph test, but his attorney shot down the idea. It's been noted that investigators do not have evidence to connect Kearns to Lee's disappearance, though this is a super strong individual in this case, you know, super, super strong um, with the evidence, you know, uh, with his criminal background and how close he lived to them on, on Honey Locust Drive, working at the same uh, church that they went to. And again, the love of horses and him discussing it with Lee. That's, I don't know, that's just too many things. Second theory is that, a uh, is that amongst the residents of Tupelo, this is the rumor th was that Vicky was involved in her daughter's disappearance. Well, we already know this. Rumors were abound regarding her alleged abuse towards Lee with classmates saying that the young girl would sometimes arrive at school in a somber mood and with bruises and a black eye. She would shrug the injuries off, saying they'd occurred as a result of her being hit in the face with a horse apple, as Lay was known to love horses. No one questioned this ex explanation at the time. 
Another classmate later shared that she'd seen Lei eating berries in the schoolyard. When she warned her about the potential of them being poisonous, Lee had said that she didn't care and that she may have wanted to die. She spoke with the counselor after this, but insisted to everyone she was fine and that the comment about her wanting to die had simply been a joke. Some questioned Vicky's behavior both before and after Lee's disappearance. It was seen as strange that she'd left the check on Lee so soon after arriving at work, and some say she appeared aloof throughout the course of the investigation. There were also factors in her story that struck investigators as strange, including the fact it took her 15 minutes to call for help when it would have only taken her a few minutes to search the house, and that she knew what Lee had been wearing when she went missing, despite her having been in a nightgown when Vicky left the house that morning. Donald has also shared that he felt something was off about Vicky's behavior from the get-go when she failed to explain the gravity of the situation to him over the phone. He also says that she didn't cry or appear forthcoming with information. I, I hate that <laughs> that excuse, though, folks, that someone cried or didn't cry. There's no way to know how you're going to react in a situation like this. And if you notice, a lot of these things about Vicky are secondhand. Um you know, or hearsay. So she also failed to aid in the efforts to find Lee. And this is something, you know, that Donald was saying, something detectives working the case have agreed with. So maybe so, but to what level are you supposed to help and in which ways? Despite what's been said, Vicki maintains her innocence, saying that she doesn't care what people think about her and that she only wants to find her daughter. Investigators have shared she's been cooperative with their investigation. So a third theory in the case is that Barney is responsible for Lee's disappearance with rumors spread regarding his alleged violent behavior towards the missing girl. A friend of the family had claimed they'd heard that Barney had whipped and hit Lee and Jordan had said that Lee once told him that Barney had locked her out of the house as punishment. He also claimed she told him that she was scared of her stepfather and that he would yell at her. Donald once said that police told him that Barney had confessed to abusing Lee but the detective working the case said they never found any evidence that any abuse occurred. So many have questioned who Donald had spoken to. Vicki has also added that Lee never expressed an alleged fear of Barney to her. So in the aftermath, Lee's case has been featured on the Geraldo Rivera show, Nancy Grace in 2020, and has been covered by numerous podcasts over the years. Vicki and Barney eventually divorced a couple of years after Lee went missing. Barney passed away in December of 1996, and Vicky moved to Tukmensa, Michigan, as her parents had relocated there. She hopes her daughter is still alive and copes by remembering the good times they had together. Donald has since remarried and started a family. He hopes she died the same day that she disappeared so that she didn't suffer, and, she, and he wants the perpetrator to be found and prosecuted for what they did. He shared that he'd written a book of advice for Lee, which he had planned to give to her on her birthdays and is sad about never having been able to give it to her. Jordan Moore shares that he still thinks about Lee, whom he really cared about. Lee Marine Ochi went missing from the 100 block of Honey Locust Drive in Tupelo, Lee County, Mississippi, on August 27, 1992. She was 13 years old and was last believed to be wearing a nightshirt and green, yellow, silk boxer shorts. At the time of her disappearance, she stood at 4 feet 10 and weighed 95 pounds. She has blonde hair and hazel eyes and was 
has a strawberry birthmark at the base of her skull. She has small scratch scars on one of her legs, and both of her knees have bumps on the skin. Her ears were pierced, and she wears eyeglasses on account of a lazy left eye. Currently, her case is classified as endangered missing, and foul play is strongly suspected. If alive, she would be 40 years old. Those with information regarding the case can contact the Tupelo Police Department at 662-841-6491 or the FBI at 202-324-3000. Tips can also be submitted anonymously through Crime Stoppers of Northeast Mississippi at 1-800-773-8477. So that'll do it for this episode. And we... um Definitely, you know, need you guys to go and um, hit the five stars for us for Apple iTunes or rate and review anywhere that you're listening to this podcast right now, whether it's, uh, you know, on an Android device and you got many, many platforms there. We're on every single platform you can think of. So you can find us there. Please subscribe. Also, we have a Patreon $3 a month tier level to help us keep the application up and working 24-7 every single day of the year. God forbid a loved one goes missing. And if you guys have this uploaded, it's just a matter of putting in their information, their vital information. Um, you can make some notes and this all goes out to all the OWL members in your area so that they can have eyes and ears out searching. This is how we're going to make OWLs you know, soar, so to speak, across the United States. We're growing tremendously fast by over a thousand percent it really uh every single week by word of mouth advertising alone so anyways that'll do it for this week and uh we'll see you on the next episode thanks guys